welcome back to the Ink Sync. I am Annie. I'm Kaylee. This is the publishing podcast for the rest of us, where we cover books and news and writing and reading, and we are so excited to bring you today our favorite news. That's right. So, Annie. Yeah. What is going on in the world of cop? This comes to us from the TexasStandard.org, which is the national daily news show of Texas, which I'd never heard of before, Mm -hmm. but it had a great in-depth look at some of the copyright that is expiring soon. So we've talked about this before. Copyrights exist for 95 years. That has changed several times over the years. (laughs) And for the moment, The mouse has two years to change. It has a year and a half. Yeah. So Mickey Mouse is the reason that it's 95. It used to be just Life of the Author, and then it's it's farther now. Um, So this is an article from Sean Saldana, I believe. So Winnie the Pooh came out of copyright in the past few years. So we know more or less what happened there. So we can kind of make some predictions. So Mickey Mouse is going to be coming out of copyright soon. 2024, I think. Yes. So this is a interview with Timothy Lee, a reporter and author from the newsletter Full Stack Economics. But I do want to read you a couple quotes about why this affects us in any way. Like copyright sounds really boring and it is. So why does it matter? So Lee uses this example. When Netflix made its series, Enola Holmes, which is based off of a novel of the same book, Enola Holmes, was a character that the author of those books had created from scratch. But she was also Sherlock Holmes's sister. Sherlock Holmes was a character created by Arthur Conan Doyle. So there was litigation about whether they were using aspects of the Sherlock character that were still under copyright. So you can see that this this actually does still matter, really. Uh, Enola Holmes was a big thing, I think, uh, early on in the pandemic. It's so good. I haven't watched it. <laughs> no, I know, watch I know. It. I haven't watched anything. It's so Mickey Mouse isn't the only thing coming up. Uh, Batman is entering the public domain soon. Can't wait for the like Sorry, 10 Things I Hate About You adaptation of Batman. <laughs> I'm so curious as to what they're going to do. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, so this is going to be just the original detective Batman. So there are certain aspects of the character that are still going to be under copyright. I believe his specific origin, I think Alfred um, and Robin are still going to be under copyright. So we're not going to see just like a brand new thing. But, and they bring up this point in this article, which I thought was really interesting. We see a new Shakespeare adaptation mm-hmm. every couple years or Shakespeare-inspired things. Um, and obviously, everything from Shakespeare is out of copyright. Everything from Jane Austen is out of copyright, which is why we're able to see those every few years as well. So are we going to see a brand new take on Batman, a brand new take on a detective who dresses up and beats people up in the streets? We don't know. Maybe. I mean, like, that'd be, cool. be a combo fight club. Will it be like a novel. new genre? Because I feel like Shakespeare is its own genre these days. And yeah. so is like Jane Austen. Sure. And maybe we'll get like a new Batman genre. Should be very interesting. That'd like what cool. they lean into. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So speaking of like The Great Gatsby, sorry, that okay. recently came, came into the public domain. Yeah, yeah. So there's a really cool thing that's like in progress now, which is like from like the ladies perspective, from Jordan's perspective, mm. right? There's been some really bad, not bad, but like just not really well received like mm-hmm. use of that particular ip which is fine right. you know, it's whatever sure. there's been a lot of it's in the public domain Who exactly yeah. i can't wait to see just what people do with all these classic works you want of like literature. a really shitty batman yeah <laughs> or just a weird give me the weirdest tropiest give me something 
Perfect. So, sp- like, so speaking of, like, just to give you guys context, like, was what Annie was talking about. Like, Winnie the Pooh is in the public domain, and we mm-hmm. saw Winnie the Pooh in a Reese commercial, I think. Mm-hmm. The character was created 95 years ago, but that author also made changes to the character as they went along. So and Winnie added the Pooh's- other people to the Hundred yeah. Woods. So Winnie the Pooh's red shirt is still under copyright. So if you ever see Winnie the Pooh out there, he can't have his red shirt on. Otherwise, that's a violation of copyright for the next at least several years. So that's part of what we're looking at. Stuff like that. Or like the, uh, other characters, like yeah. Annie was saying, like um, like Alfred and other people in the story. Like, mm. you just got to keep that in mind. And that's why the, the Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes stuff just keeps coming up every now and then because mm. they're going to literally just wrench all the blood out of that stone that they can. Mm-hmm. And if you're wondering how fanfic can exist in this environment, though, we don't make money. Actually, no money. Technically, fanfic actually just exists in a very legal gray area. Fair use is it because a lot of it is meant to be commentary. But also they're really skating by with the specific thought that fanfiction never takes away from the market of the original IP. That's why whenever you see someone who wants to like sell their fic or their stories, they have to file off those serial numbers because once you start selling it widely, it's going to become technically a competitor to the original IP. And then that becomes an issue. Unless you are making something that's a commentary that is satirical. Satire is commentary. That's satire why Weird Al is still allowed to, Weird Al is allowed to take people's melodies um, for satire. He's not he's not passing them off as his own. He's just using them as a joke. And 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 that's very controversial as well. Like Absolutely. Uh, Gangster's Paradise. Again, uh, and Amish Paradise. They yeah. had a, there was a lot of legal yeah. controversy at the time. Absolutely. So do be aware for any of you who do write fanfic, there is a legal gray area here. You are technically not breaking the law, but you're not necessarily protected if someone decides that they don't like what you're doing. That's just another reason just to use pseudonyms whenever you're posting your fic. Yeah. And also, um, and it's one of the main reasons that archive of our own is so important um, because mm-hmm. they have a robust legal team that your money yeah. and that any money that they're a nonprofit that mm-hmm. all money that goes into that particular domain it goes back into this technology its legal team and its support staff so they're very transparent about all of that and they do protect their authors which is is critical as, as somebody that literally was involved in fandom during like Anne Rice's crusade shall we say and like yeah. uh, what was it? Anne McCaffrey? Same thing. Um, and, and to be fair, there, there are reasons why some of these people were upset, but sometimes they were just extra rude and mean. And they <laughs> unintended, like they unnecessarily so. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's going around uh, TikTok these days. The Tumblr olds are describing to the young kids on TikTok what it was like writing Anne Rice fanfic. and Because now, now the, the new show is coming out. Yeah. Um, the Interview with a Vampire show is coming out. And so the, the olds are imparting our knowledge upon the youths about how horrible it was back in the day. T- and <laughs> and, uh, no, to People deal with Anne Rice were IP. just terrified, and they like, because they were getting and- genuine cease and desist letters from legal teams from Anne Rice, which is ridiculous, and were being threatened with. Well, I'm not saying just- it's ridiculous, but again, we are technically operating in a legal gray area with fanfic. So yeah, so it, it is. You just need to be careful, and I just want to be very clear: there are there are legal teams that have taken a very good and defined stance with existing law. And precedent that can make very clear and defined arguments for you. Never take money for your work. And there's a reason that AO3 is the way it is. Um, you're not allowed to link to any ways to donate, etc. for a very good reason. Mm-hmm. And they'll kick the platform if you do. Yeah, so um, the way that market is defined usually in law and in economics is money being exchanged. So again, 
hurting the market, I'm saying that in quotes, in the law usually is interpreted as taking money away from from the IP that you're talking about. So again, always support AO3. That's apparently the point of this. No, no. Well, sorry. No, it's just like that. It's just very such a such a critical piece. Of, yeah, absolutely. Of, of our approach to like copyright and trademarks and stuff mm-hmm. and, and copyright specifically for this article. In the meantime, we're waiting for our crappy Brazil style Batman. Yes. We'll keep you updated. Give me, give me flamenco <laughs> dancer, detective Batman. I don't care. I want to see something weird, Annie. I just, let's go crazy. Yeah, get wild. Have fun, everybody. Uh, we should, oh my God, you know what we should do? When Batman comes out of copyright, if this podcast is still going, we should have a flash fic contest, contest and yes. publish everything. Yes. <laughs> publish, we'll, we'll actually publish the book. It'll be great. I'm absolutely, we should 100% do that. That'd be great. I'd be in. I bet you we could get people into it. Maybe. I don't know. Moving on, I will say this this is a little bit heartbreaking and emotional. Um, it was heartbreaking and emotional to research. Uh, sorry, Kaylee. I, I put that trigger warning in there. I appreciated it. Thank you. Um, so we've talked about this on the podcast before. There's, it's tough to say anything new about it, but really just the same thing is going on. Books are being banned across the country in both schools and public libraries by people who feel that it is wrong to publish books about people who have different sexual experiences than they do. Specifically, uh, one of the big ones was a person who was asexual coming out into the world and talking about their experiences that got people really, really angry and they wanted to ban that book. And I want to say, before we jump into this, under no uncertain terms, LGBTQ people, all queer people are valid and you deserve to be able to tell your stories if you would like to. And you deserve to be protected. I am so, so sorry to all the librarians and queer people out there who are having to bear the brunt of this. This story is specifically about librarians, though. I didn't realize how bad it had gotten in libraries right now. And it, the article mentions this briefly. And I mean, and I, I guess maybe it didn't go into any specifically greater depth because it, it felt that it was obvious. Mm-hmm. But it is... Because the library is still a public service that you don't need to pay to, to pay for. Right. It's a public space. And other social services have been over the last 20 to 30 years defunded. Mm-hmm. It's a problem that we're also working on separately in parallel. But like, that's the outlet right now. This is where people are going. So I'm going to read uh, a little bit from this. This is the title, From Bookstacks to Psychosis and Food Stamps, Librarians Confront a New Workplace. And this is from uh, Rachel Shear from the California Health Line. I'm just going to read these top two paragraphs just because they kind of hit me. Lisa Dunseth loved her job at San Francisco's main public library, particularly her final seven years in the rare books department. Like many librarians, she saw plenty of chaos. Patrons racked by untreated mental illness or high on drugs, sometimes spit on library staffers or overdosed in the bathrooms. She remembers a co-worker being punched in the face on his way back from a lunch break. The public library should be a sanctuary for everyone, she said. The problem was she and many of her colleagues no longer felt safe doing their jobs. And that is apparently something that is what a lot of librarians are dealing with. It's not illegal to sleep in a library, just throwing it out there. Um, But it is something that, you know, can become a problem if other patrons are not able to to do what they need to do. Libraries are sort of like sanctuaries. You know, you can go in, you can use the bathrooms, you can use the the computers, you can sit for a minute and read a book. Be out of the weather. Be out of the weather. But 
um, librarians are not social workers. They're librarians. Their their job, they feel, usually is books. And a lot of times we're moving towards this library of things situation, which is awesome. But that doesn't mean that they are then trained as social workers to deal with people just coming in and sitting down at the computers for days on end and not being able to go anywhere else. So then they're faced with being hassled out of the library in addition to being hassled out of everywhere else that they are. It's an impossible position to put librarians in. It's very sad. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And the, the, the fact of the matter is it's, it, it is a transition that's happened over the last 20 years as different official programs are not supported defunded or just not re-upped essentially and, and and just to be clear it's not like librarians get a lot of money that's 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 been an issue the whole time to right. be fair i think recently the last in the article it talks about the the average salary for like people that have been in or employed at at, at the library in like a various like the state-owned funded libraries it's like sixty thousand sixty five thousand Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, not good, bad. but it's not bad, especially when a lot of them have to work and live downtown, which yeah, high cost of living oh, yeah. areas, a lot of them. Yeah. That's so keep in mind that these, and this is not just entry level. That's like career right. level salaries. Like you're right. not going to get much more. And so, in the meantime, they have to be social workers, which is not something that they've been trained for. Mm-hmm. They have to be therapists, which is not something they've been trained for. And do everything else that they're trying to do. Right, right. They have to be first responders. They have to be welfare workers. And also, you know, be a librarian. And, like, there is a reason that there is a master's degree for library science, because you are essentially an archivist and a uh, an information scientist and you are training people who come into the library. So a lot of people that you see, if you go into your local library, most of who you see are just staffers, like people who work at the front desk. They're, they're not actually librarians. The librarians are mostly behind the scenes, but then the librarians are the ones who are technically managing everybody. And so keeping, they're the ones who have to be called in if something's going wrong. And keeping the content cor- like in good yeah. shape and mm-hmm. making sure that it's valid and bringing in new content. Mm-hmm. And every time... And seeking out new content. Exactly. Finding new yeah. content. Anytime new legislation comes into play about like their existing content, they have to go in and do mm-hmm. a full evaluation of their archive and their catalog. Yeah. Bringing in and engaging with the the amount, whatever federal funding they might have about like new methods of accessing or reaching out to the community, like ebooks and e-readers and like their technology avenues. It's it's a lot and it's not something that is really well publicized because it's not technically part of their job that that they'll have to deal with. And so people that are maybe in these areas, in like the cities where it's more of a bottleneck and Mm -hmm. you get more people in a close space. Mm they might have somebody they can talk to about it to get a realistic understanding of what they're walking into. Mm-hmm. People that come in from smaller cities, smaller, you know, smaller states or low, less populated states may not understand that. And when they go mm-hmm. to work for a library, that's not what they were told to expect. It's not what they were trained to expect. Mm-hmm. It's not what they personally were committing to. And it's not that, you know, that's not bad. It takes a very special kind of person to be able to provide social services and help to the community in ways that are actually 
functional and helpful. It's almost like a microcosm of the world because, I mean, out there we have the opioid crisis going on that librarians are having to deal with a lot of librarians carry naloxone. We have the the crisis of book banning that the librarians are having to deal with more directly. We have the the crisis of uh, the education crisis. While kids have been out with COVID, they're fallen behind by two, three years. So people are sending them to the library and the librarians now have to deal with that. They have to deal with the education crisis. They have to deal with the cost of living crisis that we're going through because people, the library is free. And again, they have the library of things. They have, they have internet, they have computers, they have books, they have other things that you can rent out. And the librarians are having to deal with that. It's like, Whatever's going wrong out in the world, the librarians have to deal with it in some way. And a lot of them are burning out. Yeah. So this uh, went into a lot of the psychological effects, uh, librarians burning out, librarians quitting, librarians suffering from anxiety, depression, uh, overwork, and a lot of other issues. Um, we're going to we're gonna link this in the show notes. I don't want to go too far into Be you know, librarians a, being physically attacked. A rough read. It's, a it's bit rough. Of a rough read. Yeah. But it's happening. And I think that it's something that we need to talk about, especially because there's so little new news in the book banning front. We talk about it and basically it's the same news every time people are coming in and saying, we don't like these books, you need to ban them and then getting upset and aggressive and sometimes violent with the librarians who are also dealing with all of these other things. So I felt like it was really important for us to cover. Anybody that stays, anybody that starts in the industry, anybody that works in the industry, anybody that is um, invested or informed or just impacted is doing their best. and. Yeah. If you burn out, you burn out. There's nothing shameful. Absolutely. Our heart goes out to all the librarians out there. Hey, Annie. (laughs) What's going on with this uh, Schuster, Simon & Schuster (laughs) acquisition? Tell me things. Very little. Um, So (laughs) We have no more information. So there's there's just been a little bit more analysis and coverage coming out from industry observers. Uh, Basically, this is all industry observer day. So the New York Times released this uh, article on just kind of t- did the, the main takeaways. Um, this is from Elizabeth Harris uh, and Alexandra Alter and Adam Bednar. They are all uh, working at the New York Times book section. And the headline is, A Trial Put Publishing's Inner Workings on Display. What did we learn? The book world can be opaque to outsiders. A case offered an unusual glimpse into it revealing curiosities about the business and details about book sales. I do like the fact that the ultimate thing is like, it's opaque to outsiders and the insiders were like, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty opaque yeah. to us too. So, and, and I liked how they, they talked about this. So basically the DOJ was essentially making the case that this would be too monopolistic. This is, this is too much power for one company. You are going to price gouge and also offer very little money to authors, which put Penguin Random House and Simon and Schuster, or PRH and SNS from here on out before we mispronounce them all again. <laughs> That's probably safer. So they were put in a position to argue that they, in fact, did not know what they were doing because that is the only way that they could successfully or in their mind successfully argue that they wouldn't then control. And they were like, just things. trust us, it won't go wrong, basically. But there's yeah. like no evidence. Yeah. So they were put in a position point. to say that they didn't know what they were doing. So it was just like, oh, books are... Ugh. Like, who gets those magic <laughs> i sure don't understand and i appreciated that, that that they they clarified that that's why some of the stuff coming out of the trial when it was going on sounded so silly of just ceos saying oh we have no control over anything that goes on in our companies and we're we talked about this on the last episode we covered this just sitting here like what are you talking about it's your company you have you're specifically- in charge of these people 
keep the control here. So we should definitely link to that episode if you can. Yes, absolutely. So they kind of clarified a little bit more there. um, And we also have one from Reddit, uh, which is from uh, our pub tips, which is a really good industry subreddit talking about publishing. And uh, a lot of people in that thread actually work in publishing. And we're like, yeah, it was really nice to see my boss say that they didn't know what they were doing. Things we've suspected but never had confirmed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, I do appreciate that entire thread because mm-hmm. it was a lot of that and just people being like, hey, wink, wink. Yeah, this definitely won't like totally do the thing that we wanted to do, which is us having to spend less money. Yeah. Like, okay, so, like I love uh, that they were essentially put in a position of saying like, oh, we don't want to combine. We just don't know how not to. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> The arguments are fascinating. We're bad at everything and we want to be bad together. We just love each other so much. We won't. We'll still bid against ourselves. Yeah, right. It's like you use the same wallet. What? (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) Anyway, it was a very silly set of arguments. Yeah. And the Ministry of Silly Walks walked through and pointed it out. 100%. I do want to do a little bit of myth busting. So there was a viral tweet that went around and I'm guilty of retweeting it without checking the numbers, saying that uh, 50% of uh, books published by PRH and SNS uh, only sell like a dozen copies. That is not the case. About 14% of books published by the Big Five do not earn out their advances, which is a different statistic altogether. Mm-hmm. I apologize to my Twitter followers <laughs> for tweeting misinformation because it sounded ridiculous, and it was, and I should have known. Um, but that is something that they also kind of talk about in these uh, saying, you know, Obviously, these people do know what they're doing. They have to do profit and loss statements for every single book. Mm -hmm. They have to figure out, like, what the market is for this book. And sometimes they are wrong. And they were kind of parading out all the times that they were wrong and saying, you know, this book only sold 12 copies and we thought it would be a bestseller and it wasn't. And so, as we said, kind of got taken and and made fun of a lot on Twitter. But yeah, I mean, there's no actual facts Mm -hmm. for their arguments, which are just terrible. So I don't think this one is going to ultimately be successful. Although I could be wrong and it yeah, could be a knows? sudden swing. They're going to keep coming at it because people want to spend less money. Um, also, the Reddit thread is hilarious. It's so good. I'm going to link it in our show notes and you guys can see how silly everything is. Moving on into the journal publishing crisis. The, our, our long-expected episode on this will be coming, I promise, but not yet today. Um, in theory, we complain all the time on this on this show about how expensive <laughs> our research costs It got a are. lot easier to support us, guys, or it's about to. Hey! <laughs> well, maybe. So, so this comes from the Chronicle of Higher Education from Megan Zanius. The headline is, A Historic Moment. New Guidance Requires Federally Funded research to be open access. In a move hailed by open access advocates, the White House on Thursday released guidance dictating that federally funded research be made freely and immediately available to the public. It's fascinating that it wasn't before. Like, so not fully. here's the thing. The key word in there is not freely. It is available. immediately. Oh, okay. so, so during the Obama administration, Obama required that any federal research of more than 100 million, um, which is, you know, a lot, be available to the public for free at some point. And a lot of journals will take that as a 12 to 24 month embargo on that research. So that research does become available eventually, but it's only the expensive research and it's only after a year or two. What Biden's order did 
was make it immediately available at any price point. So anything that the federal government is funding will become freely available as soon as it is published, which is amazing. That's fantastic. However, so this is very, 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 very good for medicine, biotech, uh, materials, science, the hard sciences. Unfortunately, when we're looking at literature research or the liberal arts, that is not usually funded by the government. So it's unlikely that it will affect our research costs at any time soon. My hope is that what we're going to see in the future is that other nonprofits also make this requirement and say, you know, we're funding your research, it should be made freely and immediately available. But my, I doubt that that'll happen anytime soon. However, research for everybody else setting is a, about to get a lot easier. The precedent is helpful. But also like, I mean, there's, there are certainly some social services that like historically, cultural history is, is, is sometimes funded. Oh, good point. Yes. So history probably will get a lot easier from here on. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, so I'm really excited. We, uh, again, we've talked, a li- we've touched a little bit on in this podcast, the issues in the journal, journal publishing. It is a journal publishing crisis out there. Mm-hmm. We are going to go into it, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> um, Kaylee it has been bursting wicket. at the seams. It's a sticky wicket. St- Kaylee's been bursting at the seams to talk about this. She has many things to say. <laughs> and I also have many things to say. Um, but we, we've pushed it back a little bit to have some fun with our next couple topics. Um, so you're you're going to you're going to get happy before you get depressed over the next couple of months. So this is good in general and my hope of course is that it will become more common but the journal publishing crisis still exists. Will this fix it? Maybe. Will this fix it for us? Probably not. Look, you know what any any positive like move forward even if it's not as much of a move forward for us like Mm-hmm. You know, of the rising tide lifts all boats kind yeah. of deal. Fingers crossed. Yeah, is is the idea, and in this case, that might actually be true as opposed to economically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> like, let's, let's be clear, because it's a matter of expectations, and like historically, we are much likelier to bow to social pressure than anything else, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. My hope is that actually, now that you've brought up um, other ways that uh, government funding might help. This may eventually apply to state funding, mm-hmm. which would be much more helpful because states do a lot more liberal arts grants and funding. So maybe we will see this in the and future. It will impact and that will trickle down through schools and universities. Yeah, that would be really great because a lot of universities are public, which means they are publicly funded. We have hopes. We have high hopes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I won't sing, though. <laughs> Nobody wants that. Moving on, this comes to us from Spiny Trends from Peter Houston or Houston. Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce your name. Spiny Trends is a newsletter that looks at the books industry and media in general. And it reported that print price hikes force deeper focus on digital revenues. So uh, right now, this is something that was making bigger news kind of earlier in the pandemic was that there were paper shortages because a lot of paper mills sort of stopped making paper during the pandemic in favor of making cardboard boxes during the pandemic. And if you are someone who's ordering from online places went up during the pandemic, it's your fault. <laughs> so this was making headlines a little bit earlier on in the pandemic that there was a paper shortage and that it was hitting books, the books industry hard because a lot of paper mills moved over to making cardboard boxes, which is helpful, obviously, for everybody else who's 
purchasing things <laughs> other than books. Right, right. Um, I'm going to read this quote for you. Rising material and energy costs have put pressure on all sorts of businesses, but print publishers have been acutely affected. Print production costs are being driven up by rising paper and energy prices, with many printers saying their costs were rising faster than headline inflation figures, and an increasing number of publishers are looking at divesting their print operations. According to a World Press Trends report, three U.S. newspaper publishers, Lee, Gannett, and Dallas Morning News, are reporting multi-million dollar losses exacerbated by print cost increases. You mean, you mean the the money going into these industries isn't competing with inflation, much like our cost of living? That's Gasp. baffling. What? Gasp. Who could have seen this coming? Not me. Not me. Sure. <laughs> anyway. So this is still happening. And I thought this was a really good article. We'll obviously um, link it in the show notes. They don't go as far as saying this in this Spiny Trends article. But of course, the main concern is that book prices will go up for customers themselves. Not just books, but uh, magazines and newspapers as well. Most people don't read magazines and physical newspapers anymore. But for those that do, you know, they, this may be the final push. We're in the middle of a cost of living crisis and... If you're still taking the newspaper or magazines, uh, this might just be the time that you finally jump off of that and move over to digital. We don't know. This may genuinely be a part of that last nail in the coffin for for those customers. We don't know. It's It seems crazy, but it's, it's one of those ones where I'm more just shocked that this is still going on, even yeah. though like two yeah. years later, the pandemic you know, stalled so many things and it's still stalling that we're still feeling these effects all over the place. We lost so many people. We did. So the the natural world, like the materials are there, but the people that are required to process those materials are just still being replaced in the workforce. That's a good point. People yeah. are having we don't to talk a- about that enough, I think. People are having to age up into being and, and just be educated or trained yeah. in the various industries that were critical and that were impacted mm-hmm. and it's something that i've people don't want to work anymore any well that's because like <laughs> they don't have to take shitty jobs anymore right. for shit money they can get better jobs like some people retired early pointed that out you know some people just were able to get better jobs that paid more mm-hmm. like why wouldn't they that's the that's the fair market a lot of people are like jerking themselves off about and there you go well they found a better place so now you have to wait a little longer for your fish fillet or whatever mm-hmm. sorry but those are shitty jobs. Yeah. Like I had to have an art like point out to my mom. She was like, no, those are for kids. And I'm like, no, any job that currently is during school hours is not intended for a child. Good point. Yeah. Sorry. The end. Off, <laughs> off that particular high horse. But like, anyway, like, it's just a thing that we have to acknowledge yeah. that we are dealing with still. And, 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 and it will ease and people will just forget about it and not actually process that that's the reason is because people died. No, I think that okay. uh, it makes perfect sense as to the fact that it's still impactful. But I think we're also going to see like the kind of other end of the, the stick that even when the the shortage is, is less um, driven by work, lab- like labor shortage or access shortage to the materials or whatever. Right. The cost has increased. It will stay increased because that's capitalism. That's capitalism, baby. Yep. 
Thanks for listening. I am Annie. I'm Kaylee. You can find The Ink Sync on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, We are on Anchor and Spotify with availability for sponsorships. You can sponsor us for as low as a dollar a month. That would be really nice. Also, thank you, Abby. Thanks, Abby. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and one day Kaylee will make us a Tumblr. (laughs) This has been the news. If you would like to hear or see any of the books that we have talked about ever, we have them all on bookshop.org, so you can support your local bookshop. Please do. And support your libraries. Thanks for listening. Have a good one.